uh, Steve Spurrier had just the world's shortest attention span. You know, so you knew, we all knew that if you're talking to Steve in his office and he started moving things around on his desk, you know, he was done. And you had generally about eight minutes, maybe 12. Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. For a lot of sports fans in the South, these are the holy days. It's college football season. Today's guest, Ivan Mazel, has covered college football for nearly 40 years. He's written for Sports Illustrated and ESPN, among others, and now writes for a college sports website called On3.com. I talked to Ivan as he was getting ready to cover the Clemson-Wake Forest game last weekend. Spoiler alert, Clemson won in double overtime. But that's not the only reason I wanted to talk to Ivan. Back in 2015, his only son, Max, ended his own life by walking off a pier onto the frozen surface of Lake Ontario. His family will never know exactly what happened or why. Ivan wrote a book about it called I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye, a memoir of loss, grief, and love. It's as candid a book as I've ever read about processing loss and finding the love inside it. So the first half of this podcast is about college football. The second half, about more important matters. We all contain multitudes, as Walt Whitman once said. Ivan Mazel knows all about that. Here's our conversation. At the time we're talking, it's sort of the quarter pole of the college football season. Teams have played at least three games, sometimes four. Um, what has surprised you about how things have gone so far, either good or bad? Well, I'm not just saying this because you're wearing uh, that hat, but Georgia <laughs> has looked much better than than I expected, and, and I expected a lot. I think everybody's been uh, surprised at how complete they've looked in all phases of the game. Uh, but that, you know, to say Georgia, to me, is kind of low-hanging fruit. I mean, it, it, there are a lot of undefeated teams because we've only played three or four games. I think there's 33 as the weekend begins. Uh, uh, but there are some stories that uh, among those 33, there are a lot of fun. I did a piece this week on Michael Penix, at the quarterback at Washington, which went four and eight last year. And they are three and oh, and a two touchdown favorite to beat Stanford. So uh, that's a fun story. Tulane is three and oh, for the first time since 1998. I mean, you know, almost anywhere you look, you can find that, you know, the, the fun surprises, the, the the less fun surprises are, you know, the ones we're all aware of. The Texas A&M has looked pretty flat. The Iowa offense has been embarrassing. I mean, you know, there's a lot of that out there, too. Yeah, I guess Iowa scored what uh, I think some of my friends referred to as the Iowa touchdown a couple of weeks ago, which was a field goal <laughs> and two safeties, which was pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, well, the, I mean, this is a, a kind of a southern focused podcast, and I think we have a lot of people listening who are not necessarily plugged into college football. But I do suspect most people listening to this know that southern schools have dominated college football uh, over the last 20 or 30 years, I guess. I went and looked it up 
12 of the last 16 national champions are teams from the Southeastern Conference, mostly Alabama, but also other schools. Three of the other championships were from Southern schools that aren't in the SEC, either Clemson or Florida State. So it's 15 out of the last 16 that are schools from the South, basically that have won national titles. You know, the SEC's slogan, it still might be their slogan, is it just means more. And I, you know, as somebody who grew up in Alabama, has been steeped in Southern football all your life, why does it just mean more, you think? Wow, that's a great question. Uh, why does it mean more? I think so much of college football is tribal, and we tend to be tribal down here. If, if I may say we, having lived in Connecticut for the last 30 years, uh, you know, I, I think uh, football is a militaristic game. We're also kind of fond of the military in the South. So much of college football is is tradition and history. And again, that stuff kind of means more down here. But that's also sort of tied into tribalism. I almost have to watch myself now because I am – uh, I've been covering the sport since the eighties and I immediately, when something happens, I immediately think of something that happened 20, 40, 60, 80 years ago. And I want to make that connection for my readers. And I think they don't care. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I think sometimes they but do I, though, right? I mean, some, some well, of them sometimes do. they do. Yeah. Uh, but you know the the you know the, the fascinating how this is reminiscent of you know the army great army teams of the forties you know nobody's alive who saw the army teams in the forties so it's also a bit religious what how we feel about college football and and religion's big in the south too yeah I think people are fervent about college football in a way that I think they almost aren't about any other sport because it's so it's so tied to place, you know, you can, there's identity. People, I think, derive their identity from their college football team in some ways more than they do from what other team they might love. You know, let, let me tell you this. I, 16 years ago, I did a piece, one of the favorite stories I've ever done uh, for my alumni magazine. They, you know, I went to Stanford and the editor called me and want you to come back here and ask them why it's important that we beat Cal. <laughs> and, it, you know, it was a fascinating academic exercise to speak to, you know, an anthropology professor and the dean of religious studies. And, uh, you know, they all kind of, we are hardwired uh, as a species for us versus them. You know, you automatically that you know there is a reaction in your brain that 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 responds to us versus them and i think when you tie that also into the age that you go to college when you're 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 an adult for the first time or or at least you know according legally anyway and you're much more impressionable i mean there's a reason that the friends you make at that age are your friends for life and the memories you have at those age are your memories for life. And I think all of that is sort of a gumbo of, of reasons why uh, college football means more. You know, you, it, it happens to you. It becomes your school at that age and your friends at that age. 
you've done this for a long time now, as you said. Where are, are there particular towns, either for the town itself or for the game, that you get really excited about visiting? You know, people ask me what's my favorite place to watch a game. And, and you know, my stock answer, and I, and I do mean it, is, you know, any stadium that's got, you know, no empty seats 30 seconds before kickoff. When everybody in there is excited and feeling that anticipation, you know, that that's that's what keeps me going, that feeling. Yeah, there are some college towns that I have grown to appreciate a great deal for that feeling that encompasses the whole campus along about Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, not every SEC and ACC school, but a lot of them, uh, you know, and again, I grew up in Alabama, so to, to be and Tuscaloosa and Auburn speaks to me a little more loudly, but I'm excited about being at Winston-Salem for, for the Clemson game. I haven't been at Wake in, you know, since I think the year they won the ACC. So uh, Columbus, Ohio, you know, is really a city. It's not a college town, but it's a big city that still has a, you know, in a state where everybody looks at the Buckeyes or looks to the Buckeyes. I, you know, my wife's from Syracuse and I still maintain, and this may, ACC fans may find this hard to believe, but you get the, you know, the, the I don't, I can't remember what the name of the used to be Carrier Dome is now, but they sell every seat. That's as loud a venue as I've ever been in. So it, there are a lot of places that I get jazzed up about, but, you know, the feeling's a little different in each of them. So let me ask it a different way. There, how about, personalities are there you know coaches or former players or people like that that you get to see as sort of a regular part of your travels that you always look forward to talking to yeah and and I think that what I have discovered over the years about coaches is the best ones are they're in the game because they like working with kids and because they're teachers and any all of us know what it's like to have a teacher that is good at his or her job. You know, they're engaging, they're good listeners. Uh, they break things down into very small digestible chunks. And there are, yeah, there have been uh, a number of guys like that. Bobby Bowden was just a prince of a man who happened to be a very good football coach. David Shaw at Stanford, where I went to school, is smart of a man as, as I know in or out of college football. Um, uh, Nick Saban, you know, I, I, I've been in, I've been around college football only, uh, you know, about the same time that Nick has. And I spent probably the first 20 years, not really, you know, and, and Nick was a lot more brusque. He's still brusque, but he, he, he's learned how to camouflage it a little bit. Uh, but it took me about 20 years to figure him out and, and understand that, uh, he's just very direct and, and there's no artifice. And uh, once I figured him out, uh, I really began to appreciate how good a communicator he is and how, how far, you know, he's, he's thinking in chess terms. He's so far ahead of everybody else and the way he thinks. And, and if you can latch on to it, if he lets you, you know, attach a ski rope and you let him pull you for a little while, it, it's it, usually you learn something. 
Well, that's interesting to, to think about, you know, getting in tune with a, somebody else's personality. So, for example, with somebody like Nick Saban, does it help you then to just be direct with him? Is that sort of the the easiest way to start for you two to have a conversation? That's a good point. Uh, I'm not generally uh, in somebody's face. Uh, and uh, But... Yes, I think if you ask Nick a direct question, you usually get a direct answer. He may not like the question, and you may not like the answer, but you know, you, you, know, you usually usually get it. Uh, you know, and you don't. One thing: there's some coaches who are so scheduled and so busy, and all of them are terribly busy. But some guys will sit there and and you know and shoot the breeze with you, you know, because it's a break for them, you know. Nick, you'd walk in and you know you got, if you're lucky, you got 25 minutes. So I don't small talk with him very much. Uh, Steve Spurrier had just the world's shortest attention span. <laughs> you know? So you knew, we all knew that if you're talking to Steve in his office and he started moving things around on his desk, you know, he was done. And you had generally about eight minutes, maybe 12. So again, for people who might be listening to this who are not quite as plugged into the changes that have happened in college football over the last few years, there's two big things I want to ask about. The first is what they what we call NIL, which is name, image, and likeness, which is a way for players who have not in the past made money, at least not officially, to make some money now by endorsing shirts or their local car dealership or whatever it is is it accomplished its goals is it do you think it's working okay what needs to happen there well we all need to have every school needs to have the same rules and and what happened essentially tommy is that the ncaa got so gun shy uh of lawsuits that they just said okay fine go ahead and didn't didn't put up any guardrails whatsoever you know every coach you know it's almost painful now they all say it's the wild west out there but their point is you know there's nobody there, there are no cops you know the ncaa has abdicated its its role as a uh as a policeman where uh quote on you know where nil is concerned i was going to say cheating but nil is not cheating anymore you know we we all our head gets turned by the big numbers we hear but it's only a few that are making a lot. There are a lot that are making a little. So in that sense, it has achieved its goal. I think, you know, and it's hard to argue with allowing a male or female athlete to sell their name, image, or likeness. A music student on campus can do it. An art student on campus can do it. We all, well, I won't say we, I was guilty of just sort of, bumping along saying well it's an amateur sport and so why would we do that if you think about it the ncaa stretched the definition of amateurism so out of uh shape in order to accommodate its purposes the other big issue that's that's happening and we're kind of in the middle of it now is conference realignment um some of it's already happened, and it's happened in smaller doses for quite a while now, but a couple of big things are getting ready to happen, supposedly. 
Texas and Oklahoma, two of the big schools that are now in the Big 12 Conference, are going to move to the SEC in a couple of years. And then USC and UCLA out in California are moving to the Big 10, which has traditionally been a Midwestern conference. Obviously, money's the reason behind all of it, and some of the schools are going to make an awful lot of money by doing this. What are we losing when this kind of stuff happens? Oh, my God, what are we losing? I mean, you know, go back to the, we can just replay that question about why college football means more. You know, you lose tradition, you lose rivalries. You know, all of your listeners, if, you know, they're more than, you know, if they are of adult age, then they will remember great ACC games against Maryland. You know, who is Maryland's rival now? You know, who cares about playing Maryland now? Who cares about playing Nebraska now? Nebraska's a decade in the Big Ten after being in the Big Eight and Big 12. They don't have a rival. They don't have a recruiting base. Uh, and nobody's heard from Nebraska since they went to the Big Ten. Um, you know, the issue for USC, Texas and Oklahoma, I think, will be okay. They are leaving. In some cases, they are returning to rivalries because Texas A&M and Arkansas have preceded them into the SEC. A, and B, they are contiguous to the SEC. Uh, for USC and UCLA, competitively, it would make sense for the Big Ten to go back and get two, four more schools from the Pac-12 and have a division on the West Coast. Financially, it doesn't make sense. I am definitely in the camp that we we lose things because of realignment. And the other thing I feel about college football is just such a – a vast thing that it's it's hard to get your arms around. You know, the NFL is 32 teams or whatever it is. College football is hundreds of teams, all the way from the very biggest schools, which have, you know, 100,000-seat stadiums, to little Division three schools that play, you know, in front of friends and family. And they're all sort of in the sort of the same tent. Um, but the schools at the top are obviously dictating – who gets on TV and how much money there is. And there's all this trickle down. I guess it's college football built to handle this much change at once, or is something going to crack? 774 schools, I think, is the, is the correct number. Well, I, I'll put it this way. Over the course of my career, and I first got on the beat full-time in 1987, but we've had a spasm of realignment about every 10 years. Beginning in 1990, you know, Penn State went to the Big Ten, and, and then two years later, Arkansas and South Carolina went to the SEC. And then things calmed down, and then they erupt again. And, you know, and, and college football constantly changes. Uh, some changes are more disruptive than others, but – Again, I don't want to be the old guy on the porch yelling, get off my lawn, Tommy. You know, I, so I keep thinking to myself, when I started on this beat in 1987, you know, from, from then to now is the same as going back to 1952, when they were in the middle of a heated argument over whether to play one platoon or two platoon football. And that argument lasted 20 years. The 
the generation of pre-war coaches literally had to die out for the argument to end. In 1987, we all thought of that as ancient history. So I'm just trying to believe that all this tumult we have right now and all this upheaval and disruption is just part of the plan. And this is the way college football has always been. When we come back, Ivan Mazel talks about finding a space for joy inside the grief over the loss of his son. One thing I kind of figured out right away intellectually, and then I had to sort of learn to accept it emotionally, was just because this really, really bad thing happened to me and to us, didn't preclude good things from happening again. That and more ahead on Southbound. Hey, this is Tommy. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Ivan Mazel. So let's get into the book a little bit. You talk about your son, Max, who ended his life in 2015. As a writer, it seems obvious to me that you would write about it in some fashion. My question is, what made you decide to publish something about it? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, well, I wrote basically as my form of, of grief therapy, uh, especially in those first few months after Max died. And uh, I didn't want to write a book that was, hey, you know, grab you by the lapel and tell you this was my son and he was, you know, you need to know about him. I, I think there is a genre of that, sort of book and uh that just didn't interest me you know I, I didn't feel like I felt like that book was more about me and my needs than it is about the reader uh, so I, I kept thinking you know if I if there's something I can write that would be beneficial that I think would be beneficial to the reader then I'll do that and it was beginning to percolate in my head and I college friend of mine i had lunch with my wife and i had lunch with her uh, a couple of weeks before the pandemic honestly and she you know she almost came over the table at me when are you going to write a book about max and i was like and that was sort of the foot in the behind that i needed i wanted to take people tommy onto that side of the equation people are so scared of grief and so scared of the grieving that I wanted to sort of explain, this is what it felt like with the objective of maybe people wouldn't be so scared of grief or of grief, people who are grieving. 
as I was before Max died and as I witnessed once Max died. This book is as clear-eyed and direct and blunt sometimes about this whole process, about your son's death and the grieving and the the doubts and fears that you have and your family has, all those sorts of things. I don't remember reading a book that was quite so straightforward about this stuff. And what I'm wondering is, do you feel like this experience sort of changed the way you write and maybe even just changed the way that you think? Well, it yeah, I would, but I would put the, in the opposite order. I think it changed the way I think. Uh, and it has, therefore, I mean, we talked a little bit about how it's changed my, my attitude in the press box. Um, I'm a lot more sensitive to the emotions of the people I'm interviewing now than I used to be. And I'm a lot more willing to go there now than I used to be. I've been through something that has conditioned me for that. Now I was, I, refer to myself as a you know i was an emotional troglodyte before this happened mostly because i was scared of the emotion as i said as i was scared of the grief and that's essentially saying the same thing having gone through this and and understood that you don't have i didn't have any choice but to go through it i i couldn't hold it off i couldn't stiff arm it i couldn't pretend it wasn't there which is kind of how i went through my life before that yeah, I'm I'm definitely different, and I think it's affected my writing. You see the, a lot of the same people all the time, whether it's in the press box or going to different schools and, and that sort of thing. You talk in the book about a couple of nice moments where a coach or somebody would just kind of ask you how you were doing, and that made a big difference. Is that – do you still hear from people who want to check in with you or who maybe have their own issues in their own families that they want to – get advice or counsel from you about? Uh, more the latter. I mean, Max has been gone almost eight years, which is a, a remarkable sentence to come out of my mouth. So people have seen me and they, you know, uh, and I'm, you know, my feet are under me. I still have, you know, bad moments pertaining to Max. And I always feel like the grief is sitting right here on my shoulder. You just have to pick it up and carry it with you. Uh, but I do hear more from, you know, in terms of if somebody is struggling with mental illness in their family or they actually lose someone to suicide, they'll pick up the phone or, or send me an email or text me. Uh, it, it doesn't happen a lot, but, but it, you know, it, it happens and I'm, you know, you pay it forward. People picked up the phone and called me when Max died. So uh, I just listen and don't try to fix them because you can't fix them. You can't fix it. And just tell them, you know, what worked for me. I guess the big theme of your book in, in a way is you see now on the other side of this, grief is a form of love. Yes. Could you sort of explain, you know, to people who maybe don't, quite get that yet sort of how you came to that that thought all of us in this business uh, are, tend to think in metaphors and similes in order to convey to people what a an event we are covering uh what it felt like what it looked like 
And I, I always just remember thinking one day shortly after Max died, why does this hurt so much? Well, why, you know, because you loved him so much. And the thought was out there, and I'm certainly not original with me, that grief is a price we pay for love. I think that's still uh, a step too far, a step too much. I still think that sentence can be edited. You know, we're all trying to strip extraneous words and thoughts out of our copy. Grief is love. It's the form that love takes after you lose the person you've lost. And thinking of it in that way took the sting, took a little bit of the sting out of it. And, uh, you know, I, I just ex accepted it a little more readily than I had. And, and, and as I said a minute ago, you can't fight it. My wife and I said to our daughters, we have two, Max was the middle child of three, was don't care how you grieve as long as you grieve. You know, and we're not going to judge how you grieve. Judging grief is, is a road to bad things, you know, especially in a family. The grief experts say that's what causes parents. It's not the death of the child that causes parents to split. It's judging one another's grief. You cry all the time. You never cry. You know, you, you know you're always going to the cemetery. You never go to the cemetery, whatever, you know, whatever it is. Uh, you can't do that. Everybody's different. And everybody's going to handle it in a little different way. And, you know, my wife and I sort of knew that intuitively because of the nature of our relationship. We don't judge each other on much. You can't stay where, as much as I would like to stay back in 2015, Max, you know, that's not how life works. That's not, you can't, and if you try to stay there, you lose everything that's happening now. Now, eight years, you know, down the road, are there particular times or places or anything like that that sort of tend to bring back memories for you pretty often? And when that happens, do you tend to kind of lean in toward those or kind of lean away from them? That's a really good question. Of course, there are things that, that go straight to your sore spot, to your scar tissue. Max's peers are now getting married and having children. And every wedding we go to, it's just hard. It goes back to what I just said, just because this, you know, what one thing I kind of figured out right away intellectually, and then I had to sort of learn to accept it emotionally was just because this really, really bad thing happened to me and to us didn't preclude good things from happening again. And you have to be open to joy. You have to be open to good things happening because if you're not, you just cheat yourself again. You lose again. Uh, you know, our nephew got married four weeks after Max's body after we recovered Max's body, he drowned in Lake Ontario in winter. So the water had to warm up before his body came to the surface. And four weeks later, our, you know, our nephew got married. You know, did we want to go to the wedding? No. You know, <laughs> uh, but I kept thinking, well, why if we don't go to the wedding and we lose again? And, you know, it's a lot of it was fake it until you make it. And a lot of it now when we're at those weddings and we see these new babies, you're happy for them, but your tears may not all be tears of joy. I mean, it, it, it's just uh, what we have to 
except. I mean, I want to try to tie both sides of this conversation together, and it's maybe trite in the way I'm asking him, so feel free to tell me if that's the case. <laughs> um, Max himself was not a huge sports fan. <laughs> but do you, but do, you, do you feel like that as you've gone back to covering sports, that you see a, any different value in it, not just you covering it, but the value of sports for other people? Does it look different to you in what's meaningful about it, I guess? I think you know, we talked earlier about why we invest in college athletics or why we invest in sports, why we invest in, quote, our team, unquote. I think I'm a little more uh, ready to go there with a story rather than just write something about, you know, this incredible uh, play call or this incredible, you know, run or whatever and get at the essence of the emotion of why people care so much about this. Um, I'm, what I don't know, Tommy, is whether that's a result of you know, losing Max or that's just a result of I've seen a lot of football games, you know, and, and I'm trying to keep – I'm trying to write something that will keep me interested, you know, because uh, I've written a, you know, I, I've done that story before. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I mimicked the Great Gatsby as a way to write about Nebraska. You know, I mean, you know, which made me laugh. I, I don't know that it had anything to do with Nebraska, but it kept me interested. Well, Nebraska's uh, a tragedy. I'll say that. <laughs> yes, but I, yeah, I, I. Uh, I I don't know that it's directly Max. I think it's more just agent experience. You know, uh, there's a context to life and a context to how we feel about sports as part of our lives that I'm a little more open to, I think, than I used to be. Well, let me ask a question kind of the other way around then. Is there anything that you've learned or wisdom that you've gained from all these years of covering football that helped you at all during this time of grieving? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the wisdom of coaches, you know, the wisdom of, of, of good coaches. You know, when you, when you listen to coaches talk to their teams, you're reminded that these athletes that we write about and, and put on pedestals are children. You know, they, they are not, I mean, they're almost adults, but they're not quite adults. And you, to hear them speak, uh, you know, they, uh, a lot of what they speak is platitudinal. I think to be exposed to that as I am every fall in, you know, in spades is a, you know, kind of keeps me grounded to those sort of verities. So in that sense, yes, you know, I, I think I was a little more open to uh, trying to accept uh, the lessons that I needed to accept from Max's death. Uh, just because I hear, I hear coaches talk in those terms often, control what you can control, you know, play the next play. You know, and, and I don't want to overdo that, but I think there is I think there is a connection there, sure. 
Grief is love. That seems like such an obvious thing, but I never really understood it that way until I read it in Ivan Maisel's book. Grief takes many forms at many levels for many reasons. You can grieve over your favorite team when it loses a big game. You can grieve over a lost job or a failed test or a date that didn't work out. And of course, we grieve over the deaths of the people we care about. Grieving brings clarity. It reveals who and what matters to us and the things that don't matter as well. No one should have to go through the grief that Ivan Maisel and his family went through or are still going through. But in some small way, that grief is a blessing. It reminds us of how much we can love, how much we can care, how much we can feel. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where every episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See you all next time. Thanks for listening.